Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishak, and in each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, Hossam El Sharkawi was three years old when the Red Cross brought him to safety from the dangers of an armed conflict. It's no wonder that his life path would lead him to a career helping others. Now, as regional director for the IFRC in the Middle East and North Africa, he talks about the challenges now facing the region and what gives him hope despite the daunting realities. The work I feel I do and we do together with the teams is tremendously satisfying and rewarding. And there is, I feel, no higher calling than helping others and making a difference. And I see that every day. We make a difference. My guest today is Hossam El Sharkawi the regional director of the IFRC's Middle East and North Africa region, or MENA, as it is often referred to for short. Hossam, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I think we have to start our conversation with the issue everyone is deeply worried about today, the escalation of conflict in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. This is a situation that has humanitarian-minded people around the world very, very worried. I think people are asking, where is this all going? What can we do? What can be done to avert even greater tragedy and suffering? Is there hope? Is there a strategy? What do you tell people? It has been a most tragic and horrific series of events over the last three to four weeks. Um, However, there's always hope. I think what keeps us going as humanitarians is that spiritual sense of hope. Now, I often say I'm actually often not so optimistic about the scenarios. I'm, in fact, pessimistic, because if you objectively look at the situation happening, it's easy to get even increasingly frustrated, upset, and depressed. But hope is that spiritual thing that's kind of a fire inside that just keeps us going because we actually believe in humanity and a sense and a future where wisdom somehow will prevail and we will somehow overcome these horrific times. Um, So we have to believe in a better world, or else uh, why do what we do? You've had quite a long career in the humanitarian space. You've been the head of many international relief operations for the IFRC, the Canadian Red Cross, the Norwegian Red Cross, and you've also done missions with the ICRC. What makes this conflict so particularly hard from a humanitarian standpoint? Why has the impact been so harsh on the civilian population, for example? This recent escalation and upsurge, severe upsurge of cruelty and violence is 
something that repeats itself every few years. And the root causes for such a conflict have never been truly addressed, and therefore it just keeps on going. And if you look at the wider conflict, Israeli-Palestinian, it's 75 plus years and it keeps on going. So it becomes a protracted crisis and the suffering continues. And it's easy to see uh, or to become um, uh, depressed about this because generations on both sides have grown with only war. What's unfolding before our eyes is something unimaginable. And I mean, I run out of words to describe often in the many interviews I've done recently, what's the situation like in Gaza? I can't describe it anymore. I've stopped watching television and the footage. I just want to focus on the job of delivering humanitarian assistance, but also focusing on the need to prevent further suffering by focusing on the key messages and the influencing and the advocacy and the diplomacy we try and engage in to protect people from further pain and suffering. So it's become a multi-front approach, um, not just about boxes of food and water and medicine, but also just making sure that people are not put in harm's way uh, unnecessarily so in the first place. Sadly, this falls on deaf ears. Leaders, politicians, and so on seem completely to be deaf to the screams of children and the suffering that, that is taking place as we have this conversation, in fact, today. Sadly, as with most conflicts, humanitarians themselves are not immune to this violence that we're witnessing right now. We have seen uh, humanitarian workers and healthcare workers killed and facilities attacked, including some of our own volunteers. How are we going to prevent this from continuing to happen? We cannot be quiet when humanitarians are targeted and killed and injured, both on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side. This is unacceptable, and we have to speak louder and louder. We have to meet with the decision-makers and capitals across the world to say enough is enough, this has to stop, um, and not be satisfied that those same capitals are just giving us money to deliver humanitarian assistance. They have a responsibility also to, in fact, be the ones to try and influence the parties to the conflict they may align with to stop the attacks on the civilians and the attacks on humanitarians. And I think we can do a lot more on the protection and advocacy and influencing side which we are. You've just returned from Cairo. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was in Egypt for a few days to look at increasing and, and expanding the humanitarian assistance pipeline, we call it, the logistics pipeline, 
into Gaza. Uh, Egypt has long borders with Gaza. All the other borders are with Israel, and those that's that's where it's being surrounded. Um, right now, 20 trucks are allowed per day. Gaza has been under siege for 17 years and dependent on humanitarian assistance on every single day. And that was 400 trucks a day without the conflict. So that's just a drop in the bucket. That's nothing. I call that a PR exercise. It's not a real interest in providing humanitarian assistance. Um, and there are intense negotiations happening to increase that pipeline, to have more assistance go in, including not just water, food, and medicine, but also fuel, which is critical for the ambulances and the generators at the hospitals and the generators that need to run the water pumps to deliver just water now to uh, a hungry and thirsty population on top of all the, the terror they experience from bombs falling on them every 30 minutes. Um, we're helping the Egyptian Red Crescent also increase and scale up their operations and their readiness to go in with thousands of tons of assistance when those corridors, humanitarian corridors, are opened. And we are hoping that they do open up sooner rather than later. It did not happen yet, but I am hopeful that it will. You say you're hopeful that it will. So do you, are there reasons that we can feel optimistic despite everything that's happening? Are there some of the inspiring things that you've seen that make you think that something good will happen in hopefully near, not too distant future? Yes, in a way, the swelling across the globe in almost every major city and every country of average citizens taken to the streets and demanding that their governments intervene to stop the war, to have a ceasefire. I haven't seen anything like this in decades. So people are angry. Average people are saying, this is not acceptable, this is inhuman, and we won't stand for it. Entire families are walking into the streets and protesting peacefully in all these capitals. So that indicates that, yes, it gives me hope in humanity, in fact. We see conflicting reports, of course, in, in the media, uh, contradicting sometimes, or things that we kind of wonder about. Uh, are they true? Are they accurate? You said something along the lines of truth is the first victim of war. Could you, uh, what's your view on, on how the media is reporting on this escalation of violence? We live in an age for years now of a lot of fake news and misinformation and disinformation, and in fact, hate speech. We see that across the globe. We've seen it, we see it not just in conflict or, but in almost discourse in, in many countries, sadly, against many marginalized groups and vulnerable groups and 
for different sets of reasons. If you add a layer of conflict to this, uh, and throughout the 30 plus years I've worked in many of the world's toughest places, the first casualty I see is the truth. And what I also have seen, lies being used as weapons of war, not just the missiles and the bombs, because lies are actually very powerful weapons. They can help dehumanize the enemy, justify the cruelty and the attacks, and they are often used, in fact, as part of military strategy now um, to demoralize populations. Um, and some armies are very good at it. They actually have experts and consultants and public relations teams dedicated to this. And now with the advent of artificial intelligence and, and the ability to, in fact, create fake videos and, and voiceovers and animations that can completely deceive and mislead an entire population, it's now being used. Um, as IFRC and in my position, of course, we're not in the business of investigating these and so on, but I am really cautious of every uh, report I get where it makes um, you know, fantastic uh, claims or accusations that this has happened and this has happened. Um, we need to be very critical of information that comes our way. And just stay focused on people that need us um, to help them um, rather than take sides uh, publicly. It doesn't mean that we don't have an opinion, but in our front-facing um, work with parties to a conflict and populations, we are neutral and impartial. Exactly. The IFRC and the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement rely on principles of neutrality and impartiality. In other words, as you just said, we don't take sides, we don't pick favorites. And so anyone on any side who is hurt by the events can trust us, can come to us for help if they're in need. But in this media and social media world in which things are so polarized, as you just described very well, how do you explain these concepts of neutrality and impartiality? Um, consistency matters, always using them. Impartiality means that we don't discriminate. Those who are injured, those who are needing assistance, those who are not armed, and actively involved in a conflict, we prioritize using a set of criteria. Usually the women, the children, the elderly, the disabled, the patients, and the list goes on depending on the context. Regardless of religion, skin color, what uniform the persons may have worn before, or what sympathies they have. That is not a factor in us deciding to help and access a population. That's impartiality. And in neutrality, we refuse to take sides. We refuse to make statements, this side is right and this side is wrong. Um, because 
That allows us also access by both sides to those who need us the most. It's obvious if we denounce one party or another, they're not going to be friendly towards us and they will block us from getting into areas they control where perhaps we need to go into and provide the assistance that is needed. Um, and to be neutral is not an easy thing. To be neutral is often misunderstood as blissful ignorance. Oh, I don't care, I'm neutral. To actually, and that is a misconception. To be truly neutral, we have to actually deeply understand the context and the conflict and the root causes. That's when you can be neutral. Because if you don't, you can actually unwittingly misstep and misspeak and do damage because you don't understand the history, the context. And so we have to educate ourselves, but we have to educate many of those around us, including the local populations. Can you give us some concrete examples in which you can show how that neutrality really mattered in terms of how it allowed us to help people? Oh, there are many, absolutely. And I'll use an example from uh, an ICRC mission I did in Georgia in 2008 when Russia invaded northern Ossetia. And uh, I was there uh, leading a field hospital deployed at the time with ICRC and the Norwegian Red Cross. And um, to have access to those Russian-controlled areas, um, the Russians and the militias they controlled had to let us in or else we would have been completely blocked and the people needing us on the other side uh, would have even suffered further. Um, initially, we had trouble with the um, some of the militias. They had many roadblocks and they were saying, no, no, you can't come in, you can't come in. We demanded to meet with their commanding generals. Finally, after much, much difficulty, over a couple of days, we got an audience with one of the commanding generals, a Russian uh, forces, and we said, here is who we are. Here is what we're here to do. Here is the kind of assistance we're bringing in. And it's, it's not just for the Georgians who need us, but it's also for some of the, the, um, the ethnic Russians who are living in that part of the world that need us. There will always be women who are pregnant who will need to deliver. There will always be people that need us. It's for everyone. And in that conversation, we convinced that general that we're okay. And he gave us a piece of paper. Um, I said, "This use this at the checkpoints. That piece of paper became gold. That was our access card every checkpoint and allowed the entire operation to operate freely. The militias respected it, um, and the Russian forces respected it, and the Georgians respected it. That's what it takes. It's boots on the ground, and you look people in the eye, and you say who you are, um, and sometimes it doesn't work, but in many cases it does. We're speaking during a particularly difficult period in the region. First, there was the earthquake in Morocco, then the catastrophic floods in Libya, and now, of course, the escalation of the conflict in the Middle East. And there, of course, was also a typhoon in Yemen, a country already reeling from years of conflict. It seems unprecedented at one level, 
And yet it feels like we've been here before with humanitarians talking about unprecedented needs, increasing disasters, inadequate funding, lack of political will. Is this time different? Are we going to be able to handle all this? One of the top challenges I've faced throughout my career in the launch of any humanitarian assistance operation after any type of disaster, small, medium, or large, has always been inadequate funding to the scale and impact of that disaster. The toughest decisions I've had to make in my life, and still, is to actually say no. We cannot help to this extent, and therefore we set priorities. And by definition, priorities mean there are people we don't help because we don't have the resources. And those are the toughest decisions any humanitarian uh, can make, and we are forced to make them. So absolutely, we are underfunded consistently to the scale and demand upon us, be it climate change and its impact, um, be it the constant crises and protracted crises and emerging the conflicts that uh, uh, escalate every once in a while and and the two put together uh, be it the epidemics and the pandemics and I wish it wasn't so but that's the reality of the world we live in resources are limited but it's also been unfair to humanitarians because a lot of what we have to deal with is actually the consequence of failed diplomacy and failed peace processes where countries and politicians and leaders should be taking the lead in fixing those and ensuring that peace agreements are concluded so these conflicts don't come back again and again. But the world, if we take the last decade and more, is increasingly more polarized and we see actually more world leaders now um, directly or indirectly, by proxy or what have you, actually furthering instability in the world and somehow benefiting from this. Countries and resources and big business and arms industry, and I won't get into the details of this, but every conflict seems to have its millionaires and... Um, and people that want to see instability, and then they throw at us the, you know, the scraps. Say here, here's a few million dollars. You, you do humanitarian aid. You know, for the price of a missile or two, uh, unused, we can do a lot more humanitarian aid. But somehow the money is always available for more airplanes and more guns and more bullets, and not for more medicine and more water and more food. <clears throat> just dwelling on what you just said. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. It, it eats at us. I tell you, it it eats at us, and it's um, and we're just left. You know, you do it, and if we're if our teams are hurt and injured, oh well, live with it. You know, this is the world. This is this is this is the world reality. We have to say no. You know, it, just. We need louder and louder voices to say, no, this is not acceptable. I'm sorry. And, um, but the world is not heading in that direction. Not yet. 
Turning to um, your background, if I may, you are a Canadian, but you actually come from the Middle East region. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your life was growing up? Yeah, it's it's a story that only in the last few years I started to share because it, I kept it. I didn't feel that it had to be shared, but I think increasingly I share it because I think it just touches many people and it shows that, you know, the, those affected by crises and those uh, wronged by the world or whatever don't have to take also a path of um, antagonism, negativity, and so on. As I come from, I'm the son of refugees. Don't let the tie fool you. Uh, but um, I was uh, Palestinian refugees. And in 1967, when the, uh, the war again in Gaza happened, when in fact Israel occupied Gaza, I happened to be with my grandparents. My mother is from Gaza. Uh, in um, uh, with my two-year-old brother, uh, and our house was bombed. My grandfather's house was bombed in that war, and we were both injured, minor injuries with glass shrapnel. But it was the Red Cross, it was the ICRC that medevaced us out of uh, Gaza in nineteen sixty-seven. And my earliest childhood memory is of that um, evacuation of a Red Cross truck. In fact, I have these sort of flashback visions of a cross on a white background on a big truck. Uh, and I remember my grandfather telling me as he handed us to a Red Cross delegate saying, you are the big boy now, you know, you take care of your uh, brother. And I remember feeling proud, you know, I'm going to take care of my brother and and holding his hand. And I remember feeling, oh, like I was an adult already at three. And I claim to this day that I, I started my volunteer career in the Red Cross at age three because, <laughs> I, <laughs> because I delivered this uh, minor to his parents, my brother. <laughs> and, yeah. But then... History would continue. I mean, this is how these things are not. Fast forward to 2006, from 1967. I am now with the Red Cross, in charge of emergency operations internationally, and I'm deployed to a Gaza war. I am now standing on the Sinai border with Gaza, with a team, and I am doing <clears throat> what somebody did to me back back then uh, in um, coordinating humanitarian aid in and medically evacuating people that need to go out of Gaza into Egypt. And somehow that went full circle. I was, um, whatever, you know, they say, play it forward. And now we have the Gaza war again, and here I am in 2023, coordinating at a much bigger level now, an entire region on the brink of war. Um, I don't know what I did to deserve all of this, but 
that's that's the card the universe has dealt me, and I'm immensely proud of this. I wanted to ask you how that experience of you being medevac together with your little brother, your little only a year younger than you, really, brother, uh, how did that experience shape you and the direction of your life? But you already told us you are a Red Crosser through and through. But does it make you also a little cynical? Because the problem still exists, the same one. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Never cynical. No, I would have given up a long time ago. Uh, I keep that that hope, that flame. Because, you know, in my... Also, in, in my years, I worked with the Palestinian Red Crescent uh, and coordinated emergency operations and also in the early 2000s. And in that, I met many Israelis, in the, also on the Israeli Magen David at home, that were as a humanitarian, and they were helping the Palestinian Red Crescent to deliver ambulances and humanitarian assistance. And to this day, I'm in touch uh, with them. So that gives me hope. You know, it's not this us and them, this... I know in moments like we are today where it's so ugly and it's so divisive and, and it's easy to lose sight of that. There are good people everywhere and that keeps me going. What drew you to medicine in particular and then to places with extreme needs? You know, it, it wasn't a straight line that I... Like, I didn't grow up thinking, oh, at three years old, this happened to me. It just, this is a memory that kind of disappeared and it only came back way later, later in life. Um, I never even thought of it as shaping my career or life or decisions, but it must have subconsciously somehow, I suppose. Um, but, you know, the, the, the late Queen of England was asked about health. This is a story, it's supposedly true, but I like the story nonetheless. Um, uh, she was asked, um, you know, why do you think, why do you think health is, is important? She was in some health event or something. And she says, if you have health, you have hope. And if you have hope, you have everything. And I think that's why I chose health. That's really a beautiful thought. I wanted to ask you, uh, at the end of the interview, I have some other questions, but I'm going to ask you now, with everything that's going on in the world, and in particular uh, in your region, at the end of the day, who or what inspires you? What brings you comfort and hope? It's a difficult one to answer because it's not a single answer. Um, but the work I feel I do and we do together with the teams is tremendously satisfying and rewarding. And there is, I feel, no higher calling than helping others and making a difference. And I see that every day. We make a difference. Yes, we could have more resources and it's frustrating. Yes, we are criticized and attacked sometimes unfairly and it makes us angry and it's frustrating. But we make a difference. And I see that in the people we deal with. I do many, many field missions um, I visit countries and, and visit families and people in what we call even the last mile. I don't have a, 
issue of driving with volunteers um, of the Red Cross and Red Crescent and teams a thousand miles to go to a most distant location to say hello to those volunteers and see that the work they do. And I love that. And, and I've just seen them stand there with pride. If I may go back to your medical ex- uh, experience, what was your first, do you remember, what was your first uh, field medical experience? Oh, there have been many. I, my specialty has always been setting up field hospitals, managing teams and getting them to these remote locations because either the local hospitals have been destroyed or the local clinics don't exist or they have no access, they can't get out and reach the ones that they need to access. So it was always about creating these mobile platforms in vehicles and trailers and tents, whatever it, it needs. I did a lot of that all over the world um, um, in natural disasters and conflicts. And the one that stands out perhaps the strongest um, was in 1999 with the Kosovo crisis. Um, I was working with the Palestinian Red Crescent then, and we actually deployed a hospital, field hospital, uh, in many boxes initially that left the Gaza airport. I was team leader for nine, ten Palestinians at the time, uh, surgeons and, and, and nurses, and and we we flew to uh, Tirana initially, and then by car into Kosovo and set up uh, a small field hospital linked up with other Red Crossing, big Red Crosses of Europe, also with their medical facilities. And the reception we got from the refugees, this was a refugee camp straddling the border in a sort of no man's land. Uh, there, when they when we said, oh, we come from the Palestinian Red Crescent, they were shocked. You, you're coming to help us? No, we should be helping you, you know, you... This was shock in people. How could somebody from Palestine? And we did fantastic work with this community. And as it turns out, this airplane, this was Palestine Airways, commercial, took us. They had two airplanes, Palestine Airways. And the airplane they gave us to fly the team and the kit um, uh, was the first airplane to ever land in Europe. And it was the last time Palestine Airways would ever land in Europe. And it was a humanitarian mission by the Palestinian Red Crescent to deploy a field hospital. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And after the Gaza airport was bombed, never reopened again. I also know that you were in Haiti, which was and also continues to be another um, crisis that keeps on going. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that after the earthquake in 2010? Sad, yeah. I was in Haiti with twice in 2010. Once with after immediately after the earthquake with a big field hospital. Um, 
the earthquake killed 300,000 people in Haiti. And we did amazing work with the local medical teams of the Haitian medical teams that survived. Many died. Um, and it was one of the toughest missions because the, the, the bodies would just, the, the dead bodies and the injured would come by the truckload and we'd be, they would just get dumped at the hospital. And the screaming and the shouting that went on for weeks and weeks and the smell of the death because they couldn't, they couldn't clear all the dead bodies and then they started to decompose. That was a tough mission. But 10 months later, Haiti was hit by a major cholera outbreak. And I went in again with another field hospital for cholera now. Different experience, but short story. Cholera was rejected by the Haitian population. They feared it. Politicians, church leaders, school leaders, um, other community leaders called it punishment from the devil said anybody who had cholera deserved it. This was the, the entire, it, it decimated entire communities and they were stigmatized. Uh, they initially refused us to set up the field hospital because they said, you're bringing the devil, all these devils will come to you. Loud, uh, small pickup trucks with loudspeakers were going round and round uh, saying, don't, don't let people with cholera, don't treat them. They, they are the devil. They deserve it. And I thought, oh, my God, like this is. So there was actually fear of us setting up this field hospital because we could have been attacked um, by the population itself because they thought that we're here to, you know, to save the devils. And we had a small team meeting and we did this with, uh, uh, with my medical team and 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 the nursing team and so on. And we said, let's let's just quickly find out, talk to these leaders and just see, long story short, uh, we discovered that the leader was uh, a deputy mayor of, of this area we we're in who was leading this entire campaign to stigmatize. I said, bring him to the hospital. We, they brought him to the hospital. And the hospital was full. We had 80 beds, every single bed, mostly children and women, and cholera can be cured quickly. Cholera is not a killer disease if you get to somebody uh, very quickly. They can be fine in three days after rehydration and so on, and they can walk out absolutely fine. So I showed him what we did, and I showed him how we had the patients. Look, you know, this child is sick. This child is now leaving the hospital and fine. She was sick like this, and he just walked, didn't say a word with me, to me. And... I thought, okay, I had no way to understand the reaction. But that night, the loudspeaker stopped. So we thought, okay, maybe maybe it was us, maybe not, maybe. And we continued to work uh, for about four months. Cholera would end. And we decided to close down our hospital. And they... Uh, I was there for the close ceremony. We handed over the hospital to the Haitian Red Cross. And they told me, oh, the deputy mayor heard you're in town and that he wants to see you. And he came. And I thought, wow, okay, you know, I didn't expect that. And he said, please don't leave. It was a very touching moment. <laughs> 
He says, if you leave, people will die. Thank you, Hossam, for sharing that with us. I also know that when we're in the field, we wear red vests. And the name of this podcast is People in the Red Vest. What does the red vest mean to you? You know, sometimes my team complain, saying when we put the red vest on, everybody thinks we're superheroes, that we can deliver everything. We have all the solutions and all the resources and we can save everyone and protect everyone. And of course, we can't. But, but for me, it's, it's a symbol of humility, hope, and dignity for people. Thank you, Hossam, for sharing your experience, your expertise, and for just allowing us to, to get to know your world a little bit better. Thank you. You made me emotional. Memories came back I didn't think would come back, but thank you. for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard and me, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, with production and engineering support from Damien Naylor. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard and Melis Viganmeshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro and web support from Chris Aqua and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.